I'm Kim Todd, and we're so glad you could join us for another hour of Good Gardening. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have a question, give us a call at 1-800-676-5446. Pictures and emails for a future show can be sent to byf at unl.edu. We do need to know where you live. Give us as much information as you can so we can give you a good answer. So let's start with this disgusting sample, Wayne. <laughs> what is that <laughs> or who? <laughs> well, these are, they're called Osmoderma beetles. They're, they burrow as larvae into rotting wood in large branches. And these are courtesy of Jeff Colbertson from, camp, from East Campus, as I understand, mm -hmm. from a bur oak tree. Uh, from a high up branch that was dead and they were burrowing inside that rotting wood. That's what the grubs feed on. So not something you have to worry about in your lawn, but we do seem to get these regularly as picture submissions, as well as the adult beetles are um, rather large scarabs. But they're not real descript. They're kind of brown, dark brown and not very colorful compared to some of the other ones, but they are rather large. So these are part of our recyclers. So definitely good guys, just maybe not the most visually attractive. Stick your finger in there again so people can see how big they are. All right. <laughs> big, huge, so get the camera giant. Again. There you go. They are very good sized. And juicy. And juicy. And edible, I'm yeah. sure. And edible. I'm sure someone would like to eat them. <laughs> okay. Kyle? <laughs> oh, maybe later. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm full at the moment. <laughs> All right, Matt, what in the world is in front of you? Oh, I have some prime specimen of goosegrass. And if you can see this one here, it's about, I don't know, two and a half foot tall. And it's probably got, I don't know, 10, 20,000 seeds on it. So it's ready for next year. Uh, so this is, I just wanted to talk about goosegrass as one weed that can be very difficult to control. Um, it starts out as this little tiny plant, which, you know, it's probably like a week of growth on this little guy. I don't know if you can see it on the camera. And then you go two, three weeks down the road and you have something that looks like this. Maybe not quite as big, but it can grow very, very fast. And it's a summer annual that germinates a little bit later than crabgrass. So it's something that we want to have a good pre-emergent down for if we have an issue with this in some of the thinned areas. Uh, uh, typically, our pre-emergent that we put down early in April kind of runs out, and this one germinates, you know, late mid to late June and in July. So uh, it thrives in bare areas or disturbed areas or thinned areas in the lawn. And this year has been a very good year for thinned areas in the lawn because we had no rain going all the way up to July, and now. The rain is watering all these plants and they're just growing very, very fast and they can be tough to control. So control them before the weeds come. Mowing them is probably the best way. Uh, there's only a couple of herbicides that work. Pilex is one that works very well at controlling it. And then Speed Zone is another one that works to knock it back. And this, this sample here was sprayed two weeks ago. You can see that it set it back, but it didn't control it. So uh, pull them out if you only have a few just to keep the weeds out. All right, thanks, Matt. Okay, I'm glad you brought lilacs because we're getting those questions. I, I figured it was only a matter of time. And this is a disease that we've been seeing in increasing, um, increasing amounts the last, last couple of years. This is Cercospora leaf blight of, um, of lilacs caused by, caused by a fungus. Um, typically, we start to see it a little bit later, a little bit later in the season um, once we have some moisture and the plants are already stressed, but we just get these kind of brown, brown, um, brown lesions on the leaf. Typically, there's not really any sort of margin or anything like that. And then the, it will also make the leaves kind of get deformed and, and kind of curl as well, which we can, which we can see. 
You know, and this is one of those diseases that looks bad, but it's really not going to impact the overall overall health of the, the health of the lilac, is assuming that it is a, um, an established plant. And so maybe it's going to cause some early defoliation, but for the most part, this is just one of those that we can let it just let it run its course. Um, if we're really concerned about it, you can do some pruning to um, to increase airflow through the canopy. But honestly, just one of those things to let let go in your landscape. All right, thank you, Kyle. All right, John, what do we have tonight? Well, I don't have a creepy crawly, but I'm gonna talk about the birds and the bees a little bit. Uh, and I have some plants here. So this is a hyacinth bean. You'll see it again later in the show. Uh, but I'm gonna talk about the flowers because the way the flowers are made on these, it actually excludes bees. So there's sort of a pouch that comes up over uh, the reproductive parts and it actually uh, keeps bees out. So beans don't actually readily cross pollinate. Uh, very easily uh, and so it makes it easier to save them as heirloom seeds so a lot of people will save seeds uh, and we have our beans growing here um, this is a, a neat plant we'll talk a little um, about it later uh, but also on tomatoes so there's a reason why beans and tomatoes are our two top heirloom crops it's because the the blooms are made to exclude pollinators so uh, bees can't also not get into the, the tomato uh, flowers. Uh, you might see bees buzzing around. They're trying to get the pollen, but they can't. Uh, so there's actually excluded from pollination. And so that keeps them from cross pollinating easily. You use, usually have to do it uh, by hand. Now, the last few weeks, we might not have pollination because it's been so hot in Nebraska that anytime it's over 85 to 90 degrees daytime and nighttime, you can actually get the, the pollen sort of deactivated. So you might not be seeing pollination on many of your crops out there uh, this time of year. All right, thanks guys. First questions go to you, Wayne. The first one, you've got three pictures. Uh, evergreens are turning brown, lots of cocoons hanging on them as well as on the house. So one, two, three, and what are these? And are they responsible for the demise of these particular <laughs> shrubs? <laughs> <laughs> these are classic bagworm symptoms. Browning of the plant, one, they eat the green area, two, they wear the green area. Mm -hmm. And then they wander off when they're done growing, uh, much like I brought this also tonight. I had it planned before. I had a, a viewer bring this into me at the <laughs> office. This is a bagworm on dill. And it was still crawling around when I got it last week. On, and now this week, it's already sealed off the top of the bag. Uh, at this point, you are no longer able to use chemical controls to control them. You must pick them off by hand if you want to do anything. Exactly. All right. Thanks, Wayne. You have one picture on this next one. Uh, this comes to us from Gothenburg. He wonders what all these insects are. They're on the deck. They're under his ostries. If you squish them, they are purple. What are they and how do you get rid of them? Well, they're aphids, which is really strange to find them on uh, construction type lumber like that. So I would be looking for the plant that they're coming from. Um, whether they're under from the trees or from something down below and, and that's where you should be looking to try and take care of them. I like the hose on aphids. It works really well. All right. Thanks, Wayne. Matt, we have a, a viewer here in Lincoln. So he's wondering if these fluffy green plants are baby evergreens and the other ones nearby are six years old. They're used behind them. 
Yeah, these, they kind of look like an evergreen, but what they're called is meadow horsetail, and they grow in shaded areas generally, uh, underbrush or like in the, you know, kind of in the creeks or along the streams. And they're a perennial herb that is native to Nebraska, and they will continue to grow by rhizomes, and they can spread as well by, I think it's by spores. So they can pretty much take over the area, so I would try and pull them out and get rid of them slowly just keep working at it but if you take care of the main big ones it'll it'll be a it'll be easier to take care of them all right you have uh two pictures that may or may not be the same thing the first one is omaha she has these coming up in a group she doesn't know what they are she doesn't remember planting them are they a flower or a weed and then the next picture is from Papillion, somebody gave her a cutting of jimson weeds. So is that first one a jimson weed I don't, or something different? Yeah, I don't think the first one's jimson weed. I was trying to find what it could be. I don't have a really good idea of what it is because it could be some type of perennial flower that I just, I don't know. It's not broadleaf plantain or something like that just because of the way the leaves are. So if it's something that you didn't plant, I would suggest just removing it. And if you're curious, let one go to seed and then it'd be easier to tell what it is. Okay, and the Jimson weed, uh, she's, she's wondering if she should get rid of that because uh, she's read that it's very toxic. And yes, that is, uh, it's the nightshade family, so it is toxic. And I was reading that I think just some of the seed, like a couple grams, can be fatal. So be careful with that one. If you do have pets or uh, kids that are running around, just make sure that they're not chewing on it, which most of the time they're not chewing on weeds. So, uh, but that would be one to get rid of if you're plant something that's not poisonous. All right, thanks. All right, Kyle, uh, your first one here is, uh, this was actually at Sunken Gardens and she came across this particular plant. The rest looked healthy. What is this? It's flowers growing on flowers. I think we have aster yellows. And so very, very common. I've seen them on most of the, most of the cone flowers that are around right now, I actually have a whole bunch of samples of aster yellows in my car at the moment as well. <laughs> um, but really nothing to, nothing to do about them at this time. Once the, it's, uh, so it's caused by a bacteria that is vectored by the leaf hopper. And unfortunately, once that leaf hopper feeds on an infected plant, every other, every other cone flower that it feeds on throughout the rest of that leaf, uh, that, that hopper's life will become infected with aster yellows. So once we have it in the, um, in the landscape, really we just wanna be removing that as best we can. Uh, vector management doesn't work all that well because leaf hoppers, as Wayne can attest, move really fast and they move a lot and they're hard to control. All right, so you have two more pictures. <laughs> one is from Carney, what is going on with the coneflower, and, and one is from Southwest Omaha. Yep, and it's that exact same thing. We, we are seeing the proliferation of floral parts, um, but Aster Yellows has a pretty broad host range as well. We also see it um, in, in garlic and a lot of other plants, but yeah, right now when you're seeing this in your landscape, you want to remove that plant and remove the entire plant, including the root zone if you can. And not into the compost. And not into, you can bury it in the compost because the bacteria will die um, without, li without living tissue. 
and so it, so after about a week, that bacteria is no longer is no longer active. But you want to make sure it's buried so you don't have other insects that hop on top of that compost pile and feed it um, feed on it while that phytoplasma is still alive. Great, thanks. All right, two pictures uh, on this one for you, John. This is near Wilbur. She has a three-tiered boxwood, so the snowman type. Mm -hmm. Uh, about 13 years, and then they've been having these stems die back, leaves turning yellow. She's been cutting out the dead, but there's hardly anything left. What do you think she should do with this? So that's probably environmental. It looks like probably drying out drought issues, and that's common in, in boxwoods. Um, if you prune that out, you're going to lose your shape that you have, so you have to evaluate whether or not you want to keep them. Uh, of course, if it was my opinion, they would be pruned at ground level because I don't like them. I think they smell bad. Not everyone smells them, apparently. Um, so you would have to see, you know, after you prune that out, would you actually want to keep uh, that bush, uh, that, that shrub, or... Um, do you want to replace it with something else? All right, and uh, two pictures on this next one. This is Catoniaster, all the way out from Scott's Bluff. It's been very wet. They're wondering if it's the too wet or is it something else going on? That is probably environmental as well. Um, probably soil pH issues going on. Uh, our po soil pH is really too high for for uh, plants like that, and also, um, you know, the the weather is just, you know, our our environment isn't uh, fit for everything to grow. So, I think maybe it's find something to replace that one with as well. All right, thanks, John. Well, coming up this fall, we're going to be doing some renovations in our courtyard, but our pond remains the centerpiece of the installation. We want to take a few minutes to give you an update on what's going on in the pond in Kime Hall. Those of you who've been watching the progress of our beautiful courtyard for over a decade have probably really been intrigued with the pond. And if we go back all those years, you might remember that we had to build it. We had nothing in here and we certainly didn't have the beautiful running water. So one of the interesting things, of course, about the landscape is that over time it changes. And we have gone from almost full sun, which really was an issue with our pond. We had string algae. We had we would try to clean that algae out and every single year we had more and more of it. We tried barley bales, we got our copper ion exchanger, which actually worked. But the thing that has worked the best, of course, is now we have shade. Maybe almost too much shade in some instances, as you'll see when we redo the turf out here. But the pond itself has continued to actually cause all of this wonder and joy as we connect people to nature. It's the sound, it's the beauty of the water itself. It's the fact that we have turtles. And the turtles, of course, come up to get those worms. We still feed them, they're still there. They hibernate in the bottom of the pond. We have had some challenges, of course, as anyone does with any sort of a water feature in the landscape, with the pump kicking off, with what has happened over time at the bottom of the pond. You might remember that this actually feeds underground into a storage unit, then pumps back up again. So we're capturing that water, we're cleaning that water, but with all the leaves off the trees now and all the debris, that bottom area sort of fills up with all that debris. Then instead of going down into that chamber and back up into the waterfall, that water goes up and under the liner. 
So this year in particular, we've had to do a lot of raking out, cleaning out of the bottom to be able to keep it working. We still run this pond 365, 24-7. So in the, in the winter, when we put that heater in, that heater is really not so much for the turtles, although we do want to keep an, an air sort of a, an air chamber for them or let them get, come up to get that air. What it really does is it keeps the falls running. So we can have this beautiful, beautiful water under the ice in the winter months. When people come into this courtyard after all of these years, they almost automatically turn and go directly to the pond. We've lost some plants, of course. A lot of our plants have moved themselves around. We still have to fight some of those species that either blow in or come in on the wings or the beaks of a bird. We watch our cattails. We've given up on water lilies and the kinds of plants that are aquatic because the turtles love to eat them. But given all of the issues associated with keeping a pond looking beautiful, we wouldn't give it up for anything. A little bit of a cautionary note for anyone who has a home pond. This is not a set it and forget it. You do have to have management on the pond. You can either do it yourself. It will need to be cleaned out. You can hire someone who can do it for you in a very professional way, but you've got to get that done at least every other year, if not every year. We're really proud of our pond and people love it. It makes a great focal point for the courtyard. It's a lot of fun. All right, Wayne, uh, we are beginning to get pictures of clumps of leaves on oaks. Uh, you have three pictures here, and I've seen them all over Lincoln as well, the one, two, threes. What's going on with this? Is it yours to talk about? It is definitely not Kyle's. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> not for you, Kyle. Yep. All right, so they are everywhere all over town. I did some buzzing around town before I came into the studio, and yes almost every pin oak has Red it oak, yeah. everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's oak twig girdler. Just a little beetle uh, larvae that tunnels in there, girdles the inside of the stem, and you end up with a dead tip. Nothing you can do about it, just watch it, and then you can always play a prank on your neighbors, make them think they got something a whole lot more horrible. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see, one picture on the next one. This is from rural Syracuse, found on the potato plants. Good guy or bad guy? Good old fashioned Colorado potato beetle. That's the larval stage. And this, they are very avid feeders on potatoes. Hand pick if you only got a few of them. Bucket of soapy water for the receptacle for them after you hand pick them. Uh, they do, they have developed a lot of resistance to insecticides over the years. So if you can do some non-chemical methods, it might be the best. Awesome, and one picture on the next one, and this comes to us from Lincoln. Uh, all we know about this is it's over-irrigated turf. Yeah, this one could be Kyle's. I don't know what's going on here. Um, you zoom in and it's, it gets to be a fuzzy white fuzzball. And I just can't see enough to know what's going on and I don't know of anything that looks like that in turf. Maybe it's one of Kyle's uh, lovely slime molds. It doesn't really look like a slime mold. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure. Some sort of scale is white. Mm, uh, no, maybe mealybug. It looks yeah. like something fell off a tree right mm -hmm. there. I, mm -hmm. Like a mealybug or a really fuzzy woolly aphid. But, more Without information or a bigger sample, or both? Sample probably be the best way to go on that one. All right, thanks. 
All right, Matt, uh, two pictures on this first one. This is an Omaha viewer. The best way of getting rid of large patches of wild strawberries, mostly on the north and northwest. Oh yeah, look at that nice crop. You could just eat them and leave them there. But yeah, spraying them with a three-way herbicide, something like Trimac, something with probably 240-D dicamba and MCPP would do a good job, but you're gonna wanna go in there after that and probably seed this fall, just so you thicken up the lawn and they don't come back for next year. All right, and you can't leave them because there's nothing in the winter, or you deal with nothing in the winter. Yeah, I mean, it's you can seed into it if you wait a little bit of time. You still have enough time to get seed in the ground. All right, uh, let's see, one picture on the next one. This comes to us from Cook. What is this? What to do to control it? She does say it pulls easily. Yes, prostrate spurge or <laughs> spotted spurge. They're just two of the same weeds and they do have a nice taproot that makes easily easy to pull, which is nice, but they do grow, you know, three, four foot around and it's tough to find where the root is sometimes. So get them when they're small and same thing, you either pull them or use the same uh, three-way herbicide. Something with carfentrazone in them, if they're a little bigger, works uh, a lot faster in killing them before they set seed. All right, and one more, uh, two pictures actually, and this is south of Hickman. What are these? They start coming in right now as they get bigger and bigger. Yeah, and they're getting tall already. Pokeweed, and this one is also a little bit poisonous, so it's one that you want to get rid of. It just has a taproot, and you can see those seeds hanging there, and that's what it'll use for next year's crop. Uh, so kind of maybe dig it out, get that taproot out, and you'll be better off for next year. All right, thanks, Matt. Kyle, you, <clears throat> excuse me, you have one picture on this first one. This comes to us from Norfolk. What is happening to the tomatoes? Uh, it's most likely some sort of virus. Which one, I'm not, not entirely sure. I would lean towards um, to, uh, tomato mosaic virus, but would one, um, really the only way to confirm which virus it is would be, would be a, lab, a laboratory test. Regardless, management is the same. Um, once the plant has the virus, it will always have that virus. The tomato itself is safe to eat. Um, it will have some uneven ripening, but you really don't want to, you don't, you don't want to use any um, virusy tomatoes for canning because it can really affect their acid levels. All right, uh, two pictures on the next one. This mm -hmm. is from Papillion. Grape tomato was growing well and then the ends of the branches turned black and now it's all over in the tomatoes look like that. Yeah, and I, I think this is a, it's another virus. Um, I think this is tomato spotted wilt. Um, mm. And so again, just another one of those viruses. They are vectored by aphids, leaf hoppers, thrips, a whole bunch of things. There's about 10 to 15 different viruses that tomatoes commonly get. And removal of the plant is the only way to prevent it from spreading. All right, uh, one picture on the next one. This is from Papillion. It's a dragon roll pepper. Uh, the leaves are turning yellow and brown. What is this and can it be prevented? I don't think it can really be prevented. As I was zooming in, it looked a lot like bacterials, um, bacterial spot. On, on peppers, so we have a kind of a nice large chlorotic halo around those lesions. Typically not a whole lot to do. I, um, one thing it, the person had mentioned that they were getting good production out of it, so I really wouldn't worry about it and just enjoy the, the dragon peppers, is that what they were called? Dragon roll. Dragon roll peppers, yeah. so nice. And then one more, and this is also peppers. This is bell peppers. Uh, this is Madron in southwest right. Nebraska. What's going on here? I think that this is another bacterial disease, but I'm leaning towards bacterial speck. 
and uh, in this case, bacterial spec tends to cause a little bit more sunken lesions. Um, again, it's they both diseases will uh, will set fruit, and you can just cut any of the disease portions of the fruit out and eat it. All right, thank you, Kyle. John, one picture on this one. This is from Scribner. She has uh, three-year-old hens and chicks. They form the buds, but they don't open, and the flower stalks lean horizontally. How does she get these to open? I don't think there is a way you can open it. It's, they just do what they want to do. So I think uh, just enjoy them the way they are, and um, yeah, I don't think there's much you can do. All right. Uh, one picture on the next one, and this is a 25-year-old, 150-foot-long row of viburnums, and they're beginning to kind of do this. These are American cranberry bush. They're wondering, should they give up the ghost and start over? Four to five footer, what do you think here? Yeah, it looks like probably um, starting over, it looks like some mismanagement, some mispruning, could have been some borer in there as well. Uh, and so you, you know, can, can sort of start thinking about something different. There are some new uh, hydrangeas that uh, would do well there um, that are uh, a little more um, hardy, I think, uh, would be one thing that you could think about putting there. Uh, but yeah, I think it's definitely time to, to pull those out and start replacing them. All right, and one picture on the next one, John. Uh, it sort of looks like it belongs to Kyle because she's talking about the fungus on the trunk there. <clears throat> but let's talk about that tree. What should she do? <laughs> Yeah, I think the fungus is sort of a, an afterthought about the issues with the tree. You know, it's just not doing well at all. You have that, what was that big, probably branch that fell off and uh, just, it's not thriving in that area. And then the fungus growing at the bottom is probably feeding on some dead wood. So it's, the tree is already having an issue and the fungus is just there uh, sort of as a, uh, a ride along. It's not doing free any lunch. damage itself. Yeah, it's having free lunch. <laughs> All right, yeah, time to start over with that one. Yeah. All right, thanks, John. Well, you know, sometimes you, the only thing you can do is sit back and enjoy your gardens. We're having another great year with our produce and our ornamentals. Terry's going to tell us about that out in the Backyard Farmer Garden. This week in the Backyard Farmer Garden, we're kind of status quo, but really kind of getting ready for that fall planting. We're also continually harvesting our produce. We're up to about 50 pounds of produce going to the UNL Food Pantry. Super excited about that new collaboration that we have. But it's just, again, status quo, making sure that we're deadheading our plants, looking at what looked good, looking what we may not want to use again in the future. So kind of that housekeeping, kind of journaling process to see what we can look forward to for the 2024 garden series. So one thing that I do know that looks really good is our white cosmos. They are much bigger than we even anticipated, but they really do show off in the middle of our garden. So stop by the Backyard Farmer Garden and check it out. Right now, it is time for the lightning round. All right, John, you are in the hot seat first. Are you ready? I like my chances looking mm. at this panel. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, your first one comes to us from an Omaha viewer. 
They have one raspberry plant in a greenhouse, but it doesn't have any flowers and it's not producing raspberries. What's going on? Uh, if it's in a greenhouse, it probably isn't getting cool enough in the winter. It needs cold weather to set flowers. All right. Uh, we have a Grand Island viewer who has uh, had naked lady bulbs for 21 years. Sometimes they all flower and some years only one flowers. What's going on? Uh, I think it's just uh, some years they really produce and some years they don't. It's sort of a, a thing they do. All right, this is a Logan, Iowa viewer. Uh, he wants to know how to start trumpet vine from an existing plant. Uh, you can save seeds, but they're kind of invasive, so I wouldn't do that. All right, we have a Carney viewer who has uh, plums that got cut down and now they're sprouting all over the yard. How do you permanently get rid of them? Uh, you would want to use uh, some sort of herbicide, probably 2,4-D or dicamba in the fall. All right, uh, we have a Madrid viewer who wants to know whether they can prune the dead leader out of a crab apple right now and start a new leader. Uh, you can give that a try, but I would wait until it's actually dormant. All right, nice job. Okay, Kyle, ready? Uh, born ready. <laughs> we'll see. Okay, so your first one. Not, not a lot of faith in me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> your, your first one here, uh, I'm not sure where this one comes to us from, but the new growth on her apple tree is yellowing and curling. Is this a disease issue, an insect issue, any idea? Could be all of the above without a sample or having a little bit more information. It's really hard to say. Okay, this is a Ralston viewer who has a white fungus of some sort on the base of an old juniper. Is that something to be treated? Uh, probably not. It's probably something that is also just along for a free lunch. I would monitor that juniper to look for signs of decline. All right. Um, we have a viewer who wonders about lawnmower tracks. Where the lawnmower was, it looks rusty. Is that a disease? Uh, you may have been spreading rust across the lawn. So. All right, and their second question, of course, is if it is, how do you treat it? Let it dry out and the rust will go away. All right, uh, several people have asked us, why do we have so many slime molds and fungi showing up from bagged mulch this year? Um, because we had, a, it was hot, and then we had a lot of great moisture, and there's just always gonna be a lot of spores in the, in the mulch, and it, they just, we had great environmental conditions for mushrooms, slime molds, all the really fun stuff. <laughs> and it rained every day. And it rained that every day for the past yep. month, so yep. yep we're Thanks for asking a slime mold question so we can catch up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right, are you ready, Matt? Yeah, five shouldn't be too hard to beat, I don't think. <laughs> We, uh, there's a question about, is there a benefit to spraying crabgrass in August to September because apparently mesotrione in the spring worked, but then he seeded? Uh, it can set back the seed set, but it will not control it very well. All right. Uh, we have a viewer who wants to know what should be used in the spring to control crabgrass if there is a new grass seeding going on. Uh, new grass seeding, you want to stay away from your standards and go to like Tenacity, Mesotrione, or Pilex, Topramazone, or uh, Tupersan, which is Sidron. All right, we have a Bellevue viewer who wants to know, uh, has read something about doing deep integration before seeding. Is that a good idea for heavy clay soil? Never hurts to get more aerification in and it helps the seed. 
All right. Uh, we have a Seward viewer who knows that August 1st is a little late for nutsedge control, but what could they do now? Yeah, sedgehammer does work this late. It'll knock it down and hopefully really get rid of some of those tubers. All right. And uh, have you heard of using calcined, calcined clay as a soil modifier? I have not. And the reason behind that would be what? To, to absorb fill more. those deep integration hmm. holes. I would stick with some good soil. Okay. Excellent. Nice job. Five, 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 and five. It was harder than I thought. I swear I answered six. Okay, all right. I need a recount. Wayne, you ready? Well, sure. I usually at least tie, John. All right, your first one here. This is a La Vista viewer who remembers the huge dragonfly migration from last year. We're coming up on it now. Is it something that gets publicized? It doesn't get publicized, but it is something that happens annually with the green darner dragonflies. All right. Uh, we have a Lincoln viewer who wants to know, how in the world can you control the biting mites in the house without harming their house cats? Biting mites. Oh, that sounds like fun. Um, it's going to be really difficult. Uh, one, dry it out. You may have some luck with some uh, of the insecticidal clays. Otherwise, lots of vacuuming with a HEPA filter. All right. Uh, we have a viewer who wants to know what sort of insects would be attacking marigolds. Not much. There's a few. Sometimes grasshoppers will nibble on them. All right. Uh, what is a way of controlling roly polies? People think that they're doing all sorts of damage. It's too wet. Okay. Dry it out. We have a viewer who says uh, they have sweet corn. They, got, they ended up with the worm in the tip. Can they put the tips and the worms in the compost, or will the worms turn into something and then they're tr in trouble? It depends on how far along the caterpillars are. If they're fully grown, they can probably still pupate and turn into the adult moth. If they're still fairly small, taking them off, throw them in the compost pile would probably be fine. Awesome. A four-way tie. Death match. Yeah, we've got to go yep. to death match. The first time in cage match. Right. Okay. All right, John, what are the plants of the week? Uh, so we have two. They all coordinate with my outfit uh, here. Uh, so we met the hyacinth bean earlier in the episode uh, when we talked about samples. Uh, but uh, it is a very interesting plant. It is uh, native to Africa. Uh, and it is this, this giant vine that's beautiful in the garden, can be like 12, 15 feet tall. Um, and it does create, or it does grow beans uh, that are edible. Uh, they're a little better when they're younger. Um, if you harvest them when they get older, uh, they do have uh, some toxic glycosides in them. Uh, so you have to like really, really, really cook them uh, in order to, to be able to eat them when they're older, like a long time boiling cooking. And then we have garden flocks, which is just our standard garden flocks. Uh, you know, it's very common. This is sort of like the common pink color. I judged a county fair last week and I, there was an orange one that I had never seen. There's new colors mm -hmm. uh, coming out. I think that one was named Tequila Sunset <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, was the name of it, uh, but really fun. And it's very odiferous. Um, it sort of smells like, um, we had some in our office last week and I was like, it smells like funeral flowers, like that, <laughs> that, that smell. Mm -hmm. So very, very odiferous. <laughs> All right, thank you, John, on that note. Okay, let's see. Uh, Wayne, we have one picture on the first one. 
What is this large insect? And of course, we had lots of these this week. Oh yes, one, it is not the giant invasive one that I'm not going to name because then everybody's gonna freak out. Exactly. This is a cicada killer wasp, very common. They chase cicadas, they'd rather run away from you than sting you. Mm -hmm. Perfect, all right. Then you have one picture on the next one. She called this a grizzly looking spider on her spider plant. And she wonders, is it good, bad, or just ugly? Maybe all the above. Uh, depends on who you're talking to. This is a long-jawed orb weaver. They get the name by the obvious very long enlarged jaws on the front of the spider. This one's a male because of the big pedipalps that are sticking out front. Uh, they're predatory on other critters, so good guy. A good guy. All right. One picture on this one. This is uh, an Alliance viewer. This was on the tomato plant. What is this and is it harmful? It is not harmful to this tomato plant. It's, it would much rather be laying its eggs on a Virginia creeper since it's the Virginia creeper clear wing. Sometimes they replace clear wing with boar because the larvae bore in the roots of Virginia creeper. Okay. And we never thought anything would actually attack it. Oh, there it we go. does. <laughs> then we have a fun one for your fourth picture. This was yes. taken at Indian Cave State Park, swinging from the web. So they put a leaf under it so you could see it. Yes. So this is a fun one because it actually mimics a dried up spider kill dangling from a piece of silk thread. This is actually a parasitic wasp that has come out of the caterpillar and is in the pupil stage hanging by that thread. Hmm. So a really fun one. Um, it was a fun conversation with Jody about that this afternoon because she didn't know what it was. Fun, cool, all right. Matt, uh, your first one here, you have two pictures. They saw this grass on campus in Lincoln in a kind of a tough sunny spot. What is it? Would it be a good lawn turf and can you plant it from seed? <clears throat> um, you can plant this one from seed, Bermuda grass, but a lot of the ones that are on, let's say, golf courses are sprigged in. Um, this is a warm season grass that is typically not grown in Nebraska. We're a little bit too far north. You go south down into Kansas or uh, Oklahoma, and it's really widespread down into Texas even. Um, it's a great summer grass, warm season grass, but it, here it doesn't green up very well, and it winter kills pretty easy because it doesn't tolerate our cold winters. Uh, so some of that com common Bermuda grass you'll see around here in maybe warmer spots, especially on East Campus, it's probably over those uh, steam tunnels where it stays warmer over the winter, so it, it, it does well. Uh, we do have some in our turf plots uh, on a research farm, and it always greens up maybe like mid to late May and then goes dormant first frost, so it's not ideal. Uh, there's other native warm seasons like buffalo, which is a good one to put in those sunny areas. All right, uh, then your next one is uh, one picture. This grassy weed is all along the edges of a newly seeded area in the neighborhood. What's mm. this one and will it spread? And yeah, this, this one is mature barnyard grass because you can see that seed head uh, sticking out the top there. And one way to help control this in a new seedling or a new seeded grass <laughs> is to just mow it off. Uh, it does get really, really big this first year. But if we do have a thick lawn for next year, generally it's not an issue unless we have thinned areas or patches of dead grass. Uh, but generally it doesn't compete uh, germinating into a lawn stand. So that first year is tough when you're seeing weeds like this. All right, uh, one picture on this one. Uh, what is this flat, ugly grass? Yeah, it is flat and ugly and it's <laughs> annoying. <clears throat> and it does, same thing, it grows on these uh, bare areas or disturbed soils or new seedlings. And it's goosegrass, the one I talked about earlier. You can see right in the middle how it, it's kind of a prostrate growth with a 
really bright white center. And mowing this one to keep the seeds from setting is ideal. If you only have a few, cut them out because controlling them at that stage really isn't, isn't easy. All right, and two picks on the next one. This comes to us from Carney. Um, these weeds are growing prolifically in the yard. What are they? Mm. Did use a pre-emerge and a granular weed and feed. They've been digging them out, but any other options on this? Yeah, so these, this looks like crabgrass, large crabgrass. You can see the hairs on top of the leaves and on the stems. And this one starting, let's say, Jan July 1, and now we've had all this rain, it'll grow really, really fast, and it tillers out, and it kind of outcompetes the grass. The grass is still under there, but it just can't grow because it's grown too fast. Uh, maybe the pre-emergent didn't work as well, just being such a dry year, if it didn't get watered in or whatever. So next year, plan to put a good pre down with a higher, probably the higher label rate in this area. And for now, if it hasn't started setting seed, you can use a product with uh, quinclorac in it, and it'll knock this back and help prevent it from seeding. If it's young enough, um, it'll still do its job. All right, thanks. Two picks on this first one for you, uh, Kyle. This is Elkhorn, burning bush. Uh, he, he does say he has done the tap test, no spider mm -hmm. mites. So is this disease-based or environmental? I, I think it's environmental, um, or if it is disease-based, maybe there's something else going down, um, something else a little bit further down um, in the, the crown, uh, in the crown, or maybe even the root system. So I was looking at this, it looks like kind of the, the upper leaves are the ones that are all turning, and so it makes me think when you have stressed plants, they often will turn colors early. So you may just have a nice fall burning bush for the rest of August. All right. We have one picture for this one, and she thinks this looks like an aster with a deformity. It does, and I don't know what this deformity is. I spent a lot of time looking. Um, I almost want to blame aster yellows mm -hmm. because it's we can get, um, mostly we, we see that attacking the flowers, but we can see it on the leaves as well. Um, and then also the t that top leaf has a bit of a purple color, which we can get with aster yellows as well. So uh, just remove it. All right, um, let's see, two pictures for the next one. This is a Plattsmouth viewer. A 20, 15 to 20 year old flowering pear, dead leaves and branches, the top is dead, no insects. What do we think here? Well, I think that right here, we're actually looking at some fire blight. Uh, if you zoom in, we have the black petioles and kind of the, the nice shepherd's hook, um, very typical symptoms for, for that bacterial disease fire blight. But on a tree of this age, I would not worry about controlling it. Um, you know, that flowering pear is, it's lived a good life. And so I would maybe start to think about something else, especially if you have a th uh, the thinning crown of the plant, it's probably time for something else there. All right, and one more picture. This comes to us uh, from Greenwood, but apparently in every park in that area. Scotch pine, what do we think here? Take this out. Um, yeah, you know, whenever you have a tree that's losing large pieces of bark like this one is, that's never a good sign for the overall health of the tree. Whenever I hear about scotch pine issues, I immediately go to pine wilt nematode, mm -hmm. which I don't know if that's, if that's what's going on here, but certainly something you wanna be keeping an eye on this tree. Um, I would not be surprised if it's not too long for this world either. All right, uh, John, two picks on the first one. This comes to us from Papillion. Bell peppers, uh, orange and yellow, but this is what he got instead. 
Any idea? I think this is part of uh, what I talked about the last show I was on last month, Peppergate. Turns out it was more than jalapenos. There were bell peppers that got mixed up with hot Hungarian wax. Mm -hmm. Could have been another mix up at the garden center as well. There were all kinds of peppers across the U.S. that got mixed up. It was a seed distribution issue. <laughs> okay. Uh, we have one picture on the next one. This is cukes. They're regularly watered, but they're buried in crabgrass and they rarely have a chance to dry out. What, what do we think here? Uh, Kyla and I talked about this. We don't think it's a disease going on. We think it's more uh, environmental. Could be some sun scald or some sort of physical damage. Uh, and then, um, you know, as that damage occurs and you sort of get like breakdown from like decomposition. Um, so I, I would just, you know, see if there's anything in the area that could be damaging those. All right, one picture on the next one. This is Crockett green beans, but then they're, some are kind of looking like this. Any idea? Yeah, again, we don't think that's a disease thing. We think it's either an age thing. As some bean pods get older, they'll get leathery like that. Uh, could also be a genetic thing. Um, some beans have predispositions to be sort of tough and leathery. Um, so I would just try them and see. I, we don't think that there's a disease or anything going on with those. All right, and three pictures on the next one. This is papillion. Monster pumpkin plant, but uh, then tiny, tiny pumpkins, they turn yellow, shrivel up, fall off the vine. What do we think? I think that's a water issue. That's a monster pumpkin plant that takes a monster amount of water. And if you're not irrigating it enough, um, then probably as those fruits set, uh, they are probably aborting because there's not enough water to sustain them. All right, thank you very much, John. Well, as you may know, we're going to be renovating our turf in the courtyard here on East Campus. We took our cameras to Ames, Iowa to hear from Rock and one of his colleagues about which turf grows best in the shade. We're privileged today to be at Iowa State University at the Turfgrass Research Farm with Adam Tomes, Extension Turfgrass Specialist. We are working on the project to renovate the grounds in, in the courtyard between Kime and Plant Science Hall. We were thinking about just going with traditional turf type tall fescue, but we're thinking there's gotta be other things to go on. And so I found out about uh, Dr. Tomes' work and how they're working with the fine fescues, which we normally wouldn't recommend. And they have an ideal location here in Ames where they've got heavy shade, heavy tree shade, which we have in the courtyard. And so we're gonna have a conversation with Adam about what maybe he would think as an expert should we plant in the courtyard at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Adam, tell us a little bit about this trial and what's going on and why it, you developed it the way you did. It's the National Turfgrass Evaluation Program, the SHADE trial. So it's an ancillary program. Uh, and so one of the things that they want is competition for light, obviously with trees. So this is our SHADE trial and Dr. Isles, our department head, uh, is been studying shade tree cultivars uh, at the site for several years. And so we have good mature trees here uh, and he allowed us some space to have that competition for light between trees and shade, uh, something that oftentimes you know turf loses out on. And so we looked at uh, planning this fine fescue NTEP trial here. What an ideal opportunity for us to come look at this trial and have you share the information that you have on what might be the best bet for our, our installation at Nebraska. So if you had to make a choice today and you've got two years worth of really good data, what would you think would be in a shaded area, very typical to this, similar species of trees, what would you recommend, Adam? 
Well, I would look at the fine fescues for sure. Uh, they've done really well for us. Uh, I really like the creeping fine fescues. Uh, I think that they kind of recover from damage, fill back in nicely if you had some damage that happened. Uh, and they've done really well in this environment. I love hearing that information because we've rarely recommended the, the fine fescues, but now we have the data to back it. So we have data driven information to make sure that we put in the right species that'll do the best in our very showy installation at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise and the data with us. And we look forward to the end result when we renovate in the next couple of weeks on campus. Thanks again for the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for coming to visit. Of course, we had a fun trip to Ames. We also learned a lot about which turf we're going to use under our maturing trees in the courtyard. We want to say thanks to Adam at Iowa State for showing us those turf plots. A couple of announcements tonight, and of course, fun things going on in the uh, gardening world, the Greater Omaha Iris Society annual rhizome sale, August 4th. And we are coming up on Discovery Days again, August 12th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on East Campus, the last one of the summer. All right, gentlemen, two pictures on the first one for you, Wayne. This is asters. She says no signs of bugs or insects. Uh, what do you think? I would say look a lot closer. Um, mm -hmm. We have a couple of asters, in, actually more than a couple of asters in front of the office that start looking like this, and it's from lace bugs. All right, uh, one picture on the next one. Little critter on the zinnias, what is that? And this is in La Vista. This is one of our geometric inchworms. Hard to tell which one from this. But An inchworm. It shouldn't do too much damage. All right, two pics on the next one. Uh, he wants to know what is the name of the butterfly enjoying the zinnias and does the caterpillar belong to the butterfly? Well, the answer to the second question first, no. <laughs> They're two separate ones. Uh, the, the caterpillar shown is a black swallowtail caterpillar, and then the butterfly shown is the black form of the eastern tiger swallowtail female. Only the females have the black form, the males do not. Fun. And right. as you go further south in the U.S., you get more black form. Fun. All right. Um, Matt, three picks on the first one. This tree uh, sprouts small trees everywhere, 40 feet from the base. They're gonna mm. remove the tree and the stump. How do they keep the sprouts from, from doing their sprouty thing? Okay, so if there's tree sprouts in an area that you're taking the tree out, not planning to put a tree in there, you can use Remedy, which is triclopyr, and that's a brush killer. So if you spray it on the leaves, it's gonna kill what you spray it on. Generally, it doesn't last too long in the soil, so you could potentially plant one in there later. All right, uh, one pick on the next one, and you get this one because it's a fungus among us in the grass. What yeah. is this? And this is everywhere, slime mold, and it's, it's due to the, just having leaf wetness for long periods of time, day and night, and we've been in that rainy spell for the last couple weeks, so it's popping up everywhere. Generally doesn't do any damage if you don't like the looks of it, just high pressure water or kind of sweep it off. All right, one pick on the next one from Ashland wants uh, to get rid of the bindweed and the, and the pale grass and keep the clover if possible. Oh yeah, I don't know. Keeping the clover, you're just gonna have to wait, mow it off. Uh, clover generally, if you leave it a little bit higher height of cut, will outcompete a lot of those weeds for next year. But using a herbicide other than maybe 2,4-D won't kill uh, clover very easy, so you could use that for other broadleaves. All right, thanks, Matt. Okay, uh, Kyle, mm -hmm. she found this white and orange fungus. What is this? It's a stink horn. She may have smelled it as well. The top of it's kind of black and slimy to attract insects to spread its spores. 
All right. Uh, this is a Gretna viewer. She thought it was scat. What is it? This is dog vomit slime mold. Um, typically it's yellow, but as it matures, we will get kind of this orange coloration as well. All right. And then we have one uh, that uh, comes to us from Long Pine. What is this? Yeah, this is this was a really cool one. Uh, this is a pepper pot earth star. Um, I think that this uh, the viewer had been told it was something in the uh, Gristias um, genera. But you can see there's a bunch of little holes on those, and each of those holes will open, and, and spores will come out of that as, the, as it matures. All right, and one more, and this comes to us from Clarkson. Not entirely sure, um, without seeing the side or the, um, the underside of the, of the cap, hard, really hard to, to say, but based on the size and the shape of the top, I would guess it's one of our, one of our common Lepiota mushrooms. Um, big, you know, we have some that are about the size of a dinner plate, which we have here. All right, John, three pictures on the first one. Um, unusual plant. She wants to know what this is. Well, it is unusual and it's unusual that it's here because this is oriental plane tree, Platinus occidentalis, or orientalis, uh, and it's not really hardy here. It's hardy to zone seven, uh, and so it's, it's really interesting. It must have a perfect microclimate to keep that thing going. Perfect. Uh, two pictures on this one. This is, uh, she's wondering if there is a disease affecting cedars in Nebraska or is this environmental? This is St. Paul along the river in Sandy Loam. I think that is just environmental. It's been hot and dry and evergreens don't like that. All right, and one last question. This is a viewer from Omaha. She's overwintered a banana tree root corm for three years. She plants them outdoors, one sprouted, and she thinks it's producing a flower. What in the world? It is producing a flower, uh, so that is very un unusual, interesting. Um, and so they will, they have these flowers and they're usually a little longer than that, uh, but they will uh, basically um, have this long flower that keeps sort of opening up and uh, it gets pollinated and bunches of bananas form along the flower uh, throughout its lifetime. So it doesn't just all bloom and pollinate at once. It's very interesting. Uh, count yourself lucky and if you have any pups, that's what they're called, the little babies, pups, pups mm -hmm. uh, you know, feel free to dig one up and drop it by our office, the 80th and Center in <laughs> Omaha, because uh, I have a greenhouse at home that would uh, just uh, love that. And, and that kind of on the ground thing is a little unusual for bananas, isn't it, for the flower to be that low? Yeah, it's, well, it probably is probably in captivity or the way it's growing here versus where it would grow natively. Most people, it think that they're trees, but they're not. They're actually just like herbaceous plants, so it's not really a tree. So it's probably <laughs> forming wherever. <laughs> All right. Thanks, John.